The House comes back into session on Tuesday and will stay in session through Thursday. The Senate returns today and will stay in, Senate, in session through Thursday. This week in the House, they'll come back in session tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 12 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House is scheduled to take up H.R. 7910, the Protecting Our Kids Act, about which we will speak more in a moment. On Thursday, the House is scheduled to take up H.R. 2377, the Federal Extreme Risk Protection Order Act of 2022. Two weeks ago in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday, May 24, and voted to confirm Stephanie Dawkins Davis to serve as U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Dara Lindenbaum to be a member of the Federal Election Commission. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Evelyn Payton to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey, Charlotte N. Sweeney to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado, and Nina Morrison to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm Evelyn Payton to be U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey and Charlotte N. Sweeney to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Sandra L. Thompson to be Director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency for a term of five years and Henry Christopher Frey to be an Assistant Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Then the Senate voted to vote cloture on the nominations of Lisa M. Gomez to be an Assistant Secretary at the Department of Labor, Shavonda J. Jacobs-Young to be Undersecretary for Research, Education, and Economics at the USDA, and Amy Lloyd to be Assistant Secretary for Career, Technical, and Adult Education at the Department of Education. Then the Senate voted to confirm Kathy Ann Harris to be a member of the Merit Systems Protection Board. On Thursday, the Senate took up the motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 350, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act that passed the House the previous week. The cloture motion failed by a vote of 47 to 47. Then by a vote of 46 to 48, the Senate rejected Senator Ron Johnson's S.J. Res. 46, a CRA resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security relating to Procedures for credible fear screening and consideration of asylum, withholding of removal, and cat protection claims by asylum officers. Then the Senate voted to confirm Marcia Stevens Bloom Bernicat to be Director General of the Foreign Service. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the motion to invoke cloture on the nomination of Alex Wagner to be an Assistant Secretary of the Air Force. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will also consider a motion to proceed to H.R. 3967, the Honoring Our Pact Act of 2021. Leader Schumer also entered a motion to reconsider the failed cloture vote on the motion to proceed to H.R. 350, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2022. And Leader McConnell entered a motion to reconsider the failed vote on passage of S.J. Res. 46, the Ron Johnson Asylum CRA resolution of disapproval. On COVID funding, it's now been more than two months since it appeared a deal had been cut to move a $10 billion COVID funding bill through the Congress. Time waits for no man, and time doesn't wait for COVID funding bills either. Because while the deal may have been cut, the votes were never taken and the bill was never passed. Some of the funding sources proposed for that spending have now been taken away because those monies have been spent on other things. So, 
if there's an appetite for doing a COVID funding bill to give the Biden administration the funding it seeks on this front, lawmakers are going to have to come up with new funding sources. Now to a redistricting roundup. New Hampshire's map finally fell into place on May 31, and that means all the states that had to redistrict have done so. Not every state must redistrict because not every state has more than one congressional district. Alaska, Delaware, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming each have only one congressional district and therefore do not have to redistrict because the boundaries of their sole congressional district never change. They are the state's boundaries. That said, several of the maps are still being challenged in court as illegal gerrymanders. But this late in the election cycle, it's unlikely that any maps will be changed before the November elections. So we're pretty safe in assuming the maps we've got now are the maps we're going to be using for the midterm elections. Even though Republicans began the redistricting process with control over the line drawing process for almost four times as many seats as Democrats had control over, Democrats did much better than many people thought they would. In the fewer states that Democrats controlled outright, they were far more aggressive at gerrymandering than were Republicans in the states they controlled. But that's not necessarily good. Sometimes when a party is just too aggressive, it comes back to bite them in court. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Depending on which analysis you look at, you get a different feel for the overall results. For instance, according to the analysts at 538, Democrats picked up six newly drawn seats, and the number of highly competitive seats was reduced by six, while the number of Republican-leaning seats roughly stayed the same. Politico says something different. Politico says Democrats picked up one more strong Biden district, while Republicans picked up 10 more strong Trump districts, and the number of competitive seats was reduced by 11. The savants at the Cook Political Report think Republicans came out ahead, but not by quite as much as their counterparts at Politico. At Cook, they think Republicans gained three seats and Democrats lost three seats. The Republican states with the biggest gains were Florida and Texas, which also happened to be the states that gained the most number of seats. Florida gained one additional seat because of the reapportionment, while Texas gained two additional seats. But Florida's remap netted the GOP four more Republican-leaning seats, while Texas's remap netted the Republicans two seats. Let's take a moment to talk about Texas. Under the old map, Texas had 36 districts, of which eight were considered Democrat-leaning, 14 were considered Republican-leaning, and 14 were considered competitive. Under that map, Democrats held 14 seats and Republicans held 22. Texas gained two seats in the reapportionment, so they had to draw a new map with 38 districts. Under the new map, the number of Democrat-leaning districts jumped from 8 to 13, and the number of Republican-leaning seats grew from 22 to 24, leaving just one competitive seat. The Republicans who drew the map were happy to let the Democrats have five more solid seats because it, could me it meant they could make the 24 Republican-leaning seats very Republican-leaning. In other words, the map drawers in Texas expect this map to be in place for a decade, and they don't expect to lose a Republican seat for 10 years. Florida approached things differently. The first thing you need to know about Florida's new map is that it was drawn essentially by Governor DeSantis, who rejected the various maps drawn by the Republican-controlled legislature. He didn't think they were aggressive enough. Under the old map, there were 27 seats in Florida. Eight were considered Democrat-leaning, and 14 were considered Republican-leaning, with the remaining five considered competitive. Under the new map, there are 28 seats. 18 are considered Republican-leaning, 
eight are considered Democrat-leaning, and there are only two competitive districts. Now let's take a moment to look at New York, where the Democrats who control the line-drawing process got too greedy and drew a map designed to just, I'm going to say it, screw the Republicans. Under New York's old map, there were 27 seats. 16 were considered Democrat-leaning, 7 were considered Republican-leaning, and 3 were considered competitive. Two of them were held by Democrats, one by the Republicans. Under the new map drawn by the Democrats, the number of Republican-leaning seats was reduced to 4, while the number of Democrat-leaning seats was increased to 22. Competitive seats were essentially eliminated. So New York's congressional delegation would have gone from 19 to 8 Democrat to Republican, a net plus 11 Democrat map, to 22 to 4 Democrat to Republican, a net plus 18 Democrat map, representing a seven-seat pickup in one state. That is an aggressive map. In fact, it was too aggressive. Republicans sued, saying the new map violated a state constitutional amendment that had been adopted in 2014. They won their case in court and they won the appeal. So the court rejected the Democrats' map and ordered a special master to draw new maps for New York. The result is a map that has 16 Democrat-leaning seats, six Republican-leaning seats, and four competitive seats. Assume the competitive seats split this year three to one for the Republicans. That would result in a state where the congressional delegation is 17 to nine Democrat to Republican, a net plus eight Democrat map. That means that even though they controlled the line drawing process, New York Democrats came out of the remapping process having lost a net three seats rather than gaining seven. That is why you have to be very careful when you decide to be aggressive. If you're too aggressive, it's going to come back to bite you. Now let's go to the Durham probe. The trial of former Clinton for President lawyer Michael Sussman came to an end on Tuesday, and boy, did I call this one wrong. I made the rather shallow and incredibly ridiculous assumption that the fact that Michael Sussman had clearly lied to the FBI meant that he would, in fact, be convicted of lying to the FBI. I should have known better. After six hours of deliberation over two days, the jury found Sussman not guilty of the charge of making a false statement to the FBI, even though he clearly made a false statement to the FBI. Remember, as we discussed two weeks ago, this was a Washington, D.C. jury. The District of Columbia gave Hillary Clinton 90 percent of its vote in 2016, and this was about the bluest jury pool you could ever have found. This particular jury included three Hillary donors, one AOC donor, and a woman whose daughter is on a high school crew team with the defendant's daughter. But the judge allowed her to stay on the jury because he didn't think the two girls knew each other that well since they weren't in the same grade. After the trial ended, the jury forewoman spoke to the media. She said the prosecutors never should have brought the charge in the first place. Quote, I don't think it should have been prosecuted, she said. There are bigger things that affect the nation than a possible lie to the FBI. Of course, it's not her job or anybody's job on the jury, for that matter, to opine on whether there are bigger things that affect the nation than a lie to the FBI. But while we're on the subject of the importance of lying to the FBI, I would take just a moment to remind you of two people who were rather aggressively prosecuted in a, by a different special counsel, a man by the name of Robert Mueller, who went hard after George Papadopoulos and General Mike Flynn on the charge of lying to the FBI. Mueller did not agree that there are bigger things that affect the nation than a possible lie to the FBI. But I digress. It was the government's job to prove it the jury forewoman continued, and they succeeded in some ways and not in others. 
we broke it down, and it did not pan out in the government's favor. Before she concluded, politics was not a factor. Lying to the media, by the way, is not a felony offense. Special Counsel John Durham's next trial will come in the fall, October, when Igor Danchenko, who helped former MI6 agent Christopher Steele put together the so-called Steele dossier, will go on trial for making not one but five false statements to the FBI. Now to January 6th committee action. After taking testimony from more than a thousand witnesses behind closed doors, the January 6th committee will begin holding public hearings this week. The first hearing will be held in prime time beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Thursday, June 9. The hearing will be held in one of the House office buildings. It will be streamed online, and I'm quite sure MSNBC and CNN will provide wall-to-wall coverage. Two of the major broadcast networks, NBC and CBS, have both agreed to cover the first hearing live on Thursday night. At this date, the witness list has not been released. But don't be surprised if the witness list includes, eventually, former federal appeals court judge J. Michael Luddig, who advised Vice President Pence in the days leading up to the January 6th joint session of Congress to count electoral votes. Luddig's conservative credentials are beyond reproach. After graduating from law school, he spent a year as an associate White House counsel for President Reagan. In that job, he was responsible for vetting potential judicial nominees. One of the judges he vetted was named Antonin Scalia. Luddig then clerked for Scalia when Scalia was a judge on the Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Luddig was for many years a favorite of conservatives whose business it is to follow judicial matters, and he was a potential conservative Supreme Court nominee. For 15 years, he sat as a circuit judge on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. In the days leading up to the January 6th joint session of Congress, Luddig advised Pence that Luddig's understanding of the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act led him to the conclusion that the vice president did not have the legal authority to to reject electoral vote certifications from individual states. This was contrary to some of the legal advice President Trump was receiving from other lawyers. On other January 6th committee fronts, the Department of Justice has rejected criminal contempt of Congress referrals from the House of Representatives for regarding former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former Trump Deputy Chief of Staff Don Scavino. The two ultimately refused to testify before the committee and so were deemed to be not responsive to their subpoenas, which earned them the criminal contempt referrals, but not before engaging the committee and providing documents. On the other hand, on Friday, the U.S. US Attorney for the District of Columbia indicted former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro. Navarro had refused to deal with the committee at all and was indicted for criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to sit for his subpoena. Now to gun control. Following recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas, Democrats are once again trying to ride what they insist is a virtual tidal wave of public demand for action on gun control to passage of new gun control legislation. As of this past weekend, there seemed to be two schools of thought among Democrats. The first, found chiefly among the hard left of the party, says it's time to use the public revulsion at the latest events to drive weak Republicans into retreat and pass the most aggressive items from their long-standing gun control agenda, conveniently wrapped up into one omnibus bill that, in the words of Punchbowl Nose, includes different, quote, bills to raise the purchasing age for semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21, 
ban the import, sale, manufacture, transfer, or possession of high-capacity ammunition magazines, although existing magazines are grandfathered. Requires existing bump stocks be registered under the National Firearms Act and bars the manufacture, sale, or possession of new bump stocks for civilian use. Amends the definition of ghost guns to require background checks on all sales, as ATF is trying to do through rulemaking. Beefs up federal criminal penalties for gun trafficking and straw purchases and establishes new requirements for storing guns at home, especially with minors present, while providing tax credits for storage devices. End quote. Not included in the omnibus package, but hovering overhead is the prospect of legislation imposing a ban on so-called assault weapons. Speaker Pelosi said last week that Congress should pass such a ban, but did not commit to putting such legislation on the floor of the House. She's apparently not sure it could pass the House, despite the fact that Democrats are in the majority. The second school of thought among Democrats seems to be a somewhat more sincere effort to come to some kind of bipartisan agreement on a smaller package of less aggressive things like enhancing school safety, more money for mental health, federal incentives for states to pass their own red flag laws, and maybe some changes to background checks. This, uh, the former school of thought lives loudly among House Democrats, the latter among Senate Democrats. After seeming to indicate his preference for actually getting something done and thereby siding with Senate Democrats, President Biden gave a primetime speech on Thursday evening in which he caused no end of jaw-dropping when he unexpectedly made clear his preference for the whole kit and caboodle. He even called for a return to the so-called assault weapons ban of the Clinton era, which experience shows resulted in virtually no reduction in violent gun crime. The result is this, likely to, is likely to be this. Later this week, the House will pass a very aggressive package of gun control legislation, possibly including even a ban on so-called assault weapons, which will go absolutely nowhere in the United States Senate. Meanwhile, the Senate may or may not pass a smaller, more targeted package of legislation that won't satisfy the hard left and may not, as a result, pass the House if it ever passes the Senate. And President Biden, who campaigned on his understanding of the Senate and his ability to broker deals and foster unity, will once again have chosen, instead of unifying the country, to vilify his political opponents and stoke the kind of political division that makes bipartisan legislative achievements difficult. But Democrats will have the issue they seek. Republicans will be responsible for not passing a so-called assault weapons ban or anything else. And most Republican lawmakers will be quite happy about that. Of course, not all Democrats will be happy at being forced to vote on such strong gun control legislation. In fact, I'll bet a lot of Democrats in the House would much prefer not to have to vote on that omnibus bill at all, especially since it's never going to pass the Senate. And the notion of having to vote on an outright ban on so-called assault weapons just makes them stick to their stomachs because they know there's a reason the AR-15 is the most popular rifle in the United States. And every single AR-15 owner they represent will vote to retire them in November if they become convinced that there's a gun grab going on. Remember, Democrats say they want gun control, but what they really want is to repeal the Second Amendment. They're smart enough not to just come right out and say it because they know they will never, ever succeed in substantially amending the Second Amendment, so they can't say it that way. But that's what they really want, and don't ever, ever forget it. Finally, to Andy Biggs's WHO Withdrawal Act. 
On Friday, Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs introduced H.R. 7931, the WHO Withdrawal Act, to direct the president to withdraw the United States from the Constitution of the World Health Organization and to prevent the U.S. government from spending any money to participate in the World Health Organization or any successor organization. In addition, the bill repeals the original 1948 law that provided for U.S. membership and participation in the World Health Organization. Said Congressman Biggs in introducing the legislation, quote, for years, the WHO has undermined American interests and remains one of the most corrupt and ineffective international organizations. The organization has been compromised by China and has sabotaged many public health investigations, including the COVID investigation in Wuhan. Despite the WHO's failure to objectively provide health guidance to the world, President Biden now seeks to give the WHO more authority to define what a pandemic is, how long a pandemic lasts, and encroach upon the sovereignty of nations like ours. It's unacceptable. My legislation ensures that we protect American interests first. Beyond Congressman Biggs's particular COVID-related problems with the WHO, there's the whole notion of the WHO's assault on national sovereignty when it comes to other issues like abortion. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington report for this week.